Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Checkup Podcast delivered to you by Medcast. In this episode, we join Dr. Justin Coleman and Professor Mike Lean for a discussion on diabetes. Justin is a GP on Tiwi Islands and a senior lecturer at Flinders University. He is joined by Mike Lean, a professor of human nutrition at Glasgow University. This episode was recorded by Justin and Mike in Alice Springs with support from Flinders University. Let's start, first of all, talking about nutrition and talking about what we eat and we we are what we eat. You're a physician with a particular interest in diabetes and your journey was steadily moving upstream from seeing people with diabetes for whom we have lots of medications. You started off, I guess, downstream looking at those people and then Ever since your your journey seems to have been stepping backwards and and uh, up up those waterfalls, yes, tell, tell us about that. I suppose this. Uh, my goodness, I'd never thought of it in these terms. But my my dad is a great fan of the Goon Show, and uh, I'm walking backwards for Christmas. Seems to ring ring quite true here. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I started off as a nosy kind of medical student who went into professorial jobs because I sort of wanted to see the best of everything, and very quickly my first residency was in cardiothoracic surgery. And I loved it. I mean, I was really, I thought, gosh, this is, this is quite easy in a way. You cobble up arteries and cobble up valves and we can put things together here. For Most the, of the, for work, the listeners, uh, Mike's moving his fingers, much like half between playing a fiddle and uh, doing heart surgery. Right. So, and, and the, the bottom line was that basically I, I recognised very, very quickly that we were operating on people with end-stage disease. Most of it was coronary artery grafting at that time. And this disease was preventable, and this seemed to be the wrong approach. So I then went, as you say, walked backwards into how do we prevent heart disease? And it seemed pretty obvious that a lot of our patients had diabetes. So let's go into diabetes. And that's what I did and and trained up in diabetes. And there was a sort of close call between going down the type 1 route and the type 2 route, but numbers won out. And it was quite clear that type 2 was the biggest problem by a long, long, long way. Uh, And that took me into diabetes training. And then to get my research credentials, I went back down to Cambridge uh, for several years working for the MRC to get behind type 2 diabetes and look at what's driving it. And it was at that time that it became very, very obvious that this disease doesn't happen if people don't gain weight. And so the issue is actually all to do with weight gain and obesity. But of course, obesity doesn't mean a body mass index of 30, especially not for indigenous people or for South Asians. Um, And in fact, conceiving of obesity as a fixed BMI or waist circumference has failed to understand that it's a disease process. And what we now understand about type 2 diabetes is that it's when that disease process in susceptible individuals starts to put the extra fat into your vital organs, into your liver, into your pancreas, into your heart, etc., they stop functioning. And it, it, it's sort of blindingly obvious now as we look back that we had misunderstood type 2 diabetes for a very long time. We had thought of it as a, a standalone disease somehow related to type 1 diabetes. And there are, of course, many features, crossover features. So you have high blood glucose and you have inadequate beta cell responses. But the, the pathology, the disease process behind it is almost exclusively that of fat accumulation in the body. And then our genes or our epigenes, our lifestyle factors tend to put the fat into these vital organs in some people at some stages, but not others. And we have this idea now that as you gain weight, and many people, most people do, there's a sort of threshold, and we're calling it the personal fat threshold, at which point you start putting that extra fat into your vital organs. Now, as a European I tend to put it, I would tend to put it into my vital organs quite late in the story, but South Asians, 
and other indigenous people put their fat into vital organs at a much earlier stage and develop diabetes at a younger age with less total fat, so a lower weight or BMI, if you like. That is a radical thought in itself. But then we've gone one step further to say, well, look, if that process is as simple as it looks, can we get rid of it by shedding the extra weight? And the answer is yes. So this is, this is what we've been doing for the last 10 years, is doing absolutely non-rocket science, but doing it quite well um, with good scientific principles and good interventions to help as many people as possible to shed the, the last bit of extra weight they put on, which is the, the fat that's gone into their vital organs. And it looks like for most people, if they lose 15 kilos, you've got a nine out of 10 will no longer be diabetic. And that is hugely important because if you don't have diabetes, you can't get its complications. And obviously, if you've had diabetes for a number of years, well, that may, there may be a legacy from that. So the answer is to do it as soon as possible. If, if you can't do it before you develop diabetes, do it as soon as possible afterwards. And that seems to be the new way of looking at this disease. It's extraordinary when you think about it. So there's been suggestions that the first few kilos are sort of important to lose. And certainly in most diets or virtually regardless of diet, except for some of the really wacky ones, people do quickly lose, you know, mm. four or five mm. kilograms. Then yeah. you can probably lose those first five kilograms in a month. Uh, most people have they tried reasonably hard, whereas to sustain something more than that, takes a, a more of a long-term effort, is that right? Yes, and I, I think possibly I, I, I could probably be held responsible for the idea that five kilograms or five to ten kilograms is, is a target. That was actually the target we set in the 1996 sign guideline, and that was the world's first evidence-based guideline for weight management, and, and I wrote it. We have you, <laughs> ladies so, and gentlemen, we have here <laughs> <a> confession, <laughs> An absolute confession. And, and, but the reason we wrote it was because there was nothing else we could do. Dietitians and everything we had could get, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can lose five to ten. You're absolutely right. And nearer the five than the ten in most cases yeah. in a month or two. And then it all peters out. And that's what we had in 1996. So we said, well, look, we know everything improves with that. But we weren't at that stage looking for remission, uh, which is an, this new buzzword. Mm -hmm. So what we've done subsequently, having, having understood this non-rocket science, we said, right, we have to find a way to help people get rid of more weight than that. And we have to sort of backtrack very slightly. Human beings evolved for most of our million years of evolution, you know, in the days when we didn't have good language and we just played music, um, <laughs> and we ate what we could find, and, and we didn't have you know, systems pouring food at us. If you could store away eight or 10 kilograms of fat, you would survive 40 days. You can do the mathematics yourself. Mm. 40 days and 40 nights. Does that ring a bell with you at all? Mm. So, There's something um, ancient about well, that. That, that is how we evolved. And that was what our evolution and our biology led our bodies to expect to be about as much fat as you would accumulate. Now, of course, that, that would keep your body mass index at around 19 or 20 for most of your life. And there are some of us... I'm sitting beside Justin here, and he and I, I'd be fair to say, both have a body mass index, which is probably not far from 20, 21, 22, mm. that order, um, which is fine if, if it isn't a struggle. And for us, it isn't a struggle. We're, but for all, many we're people, always less than 40 days from the nearest right. supermarket, I suspect. Yeah. <laughs> so we haven't put that to the test yet, but the 40 days and 40 nights is, is, is very true. And hunger strikers, sad to say, if they keep it up, the Irish ones who died, it was about 42 days. Right. Uh, and there you go. On the other hand, if... If you want to survive a long famine, you've got a couple of strategies. One is to be like Justin and me and 
come the famine, we will have to leg it over the mountains and go and find something to eat because there's no other way of surviving beyond 40 days and 40 nights. The alternative biological strategy is to store away more fat than that. And of course, in our funny species, in every family, there'll be some who are good at running over mountains and have a lot of type 1 muscle fibers who will keep you going for days on end. And there'll be others who have the type 1 muscle fibers and tend to sit tight in their in their caves. The hibernators. If you like, the hibernators. And they will sit tight and and conserve those calories. And if you store up double that amount of fat, you'll you'll live a bit longer. Or if you just store three times that amount of fat, you'll live an even longer period than that. Mm. The world record is something like 150 or 180 days, which is quite a long time. Don't try it. Please no, don't try it. Makes this. me feel hungry. So starvation is, is starvation is a very, very bad thing, not just because of lack of calories, but because of lack of all the other micronutrients. Uh, but I mean taking this sort of principle saying we've got all this extra fat and we've gone way beyond what our bodies were designed to carry. That's apparent from the state of knees, hips, backs, as well as all the other organ malfunctions. What can we do? As you say, losing five kilograms is achievable. The problem with losing five kilograms is jolly hard work. Mm. Uh, and people who've done it will, will say, yeah, I mean, it, losing five kilos takes time, a lot of deprivation. You have to and be what, prepared. And what do you have to show for hungry. it? You know, your blood pressure comes down that bit and <clears throat> your blood glucose that bit um, and your lipids might be marginally. But there's nothing. You don't feel a lot better. You don't look a lot better. Quality of life does not improve because the proof of the pudding is people then tend to eat it all back up again. And what we found is that if people can be helped, supported and guided to lose a lot more weight of the order of you know, certainly more than 10 kilograms and, and more than 15 if, if you can, and that's far and away the best, yep. then the, the quality of life absolutely improves. And people feel fitter, stronger, they sleep better, um, they're more alert. They just feel better. Quality of life is better. And they've got something to show for it. They really have got something to show mm. for it. And if you had type 2 diabetes, now type 2 diabetes, and we need to be a bit braver about this and saying that this is a very, very bad disease. Your 10-year survival with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is better than type 2 diabetes. So which disease would you rather have? Mm. And given that comparison, what sort of treatment would you be prepared to accept? Now, if I said type 2 diabetes will cut your life down by, on average, seven years with our drugs, which is exactly what we got at the moment. And it's, it's, that's remained the case for the 30-odd years of my career. Mm. The high life expectancy reduced by about seven years. And of course, those, the last years are not good years. They're with multiple disabilities and a lot of pain very often. And that's with all our drugs and medications. And you've got an alternative, which is to get a remission. A remission means you no longer have any of the features of this disease, your blood glucose, your hemoglobin A1c, non-diabetic, you don't have to pay the extra insurance premiums. You, know, you, you, mm. you don't have diabetes. But we recognize that you must be the sort of person who is predisposed, you, your genes and, and yes. such like. So there's always a risk that should you put the weight on or grow older, mm. know, at a remaining a bit overweight, it'll come back again. So remission is, is, is something we need to keep an eye on, but it does mean you're clear of the disease for the time being and you can live and behave as, you, you know, as if you don't have it. But don't put the weight back on. <laughs> sure. <laughs> The concept of remission, I find 
fascinating and quite attractive. It seems to have got you into a bit of trouble occasionally, Mike. So there seems to be some resistance. And, and certainly I've, I've talked about this with GPs and, and some GPs really do feel that once you have diabetes written on the patient's uh, medical yeah. summary, it, it should stay there. And if they lose weight and they don't currently have diabetes, their feeling is, well, it's an underlying thing. We shouldn't get rid of that diagnosis. I yeah. personally feel strongly the other way around. I think, I think it's, a, it's a wonderful achievement to be able to get rid of that diagnosis. There seems to be some resistance which you've come across in both the medical profession and perhaps in forces beyond the medical profession. Tell us about that. <laughs> what insight you have, Justin. Well, I, I'm a, I guess as an academic, knowing a little bit about the physiology, I would be naturally cautious about saying, and, and we do not say, it's cured. You can go away and put all the weight back on again. Um, the disease has been removed, all the features have gone. And this is very similar to a, a cancer of which we can see no remnant at all, but we're going to keep you under surveillance. Now, the opposition to this has, has come for various reasons. One was a very simple thing that GPs in particular quite rightly said, well, we can't be absolutely sure it won't come back again. Don't you think it's a good idea to keep a check? And we better just keep saying, well, you have diabetes, but it sort of doesn't count for the time being. We use a, a coding system called SNOMED, uh, which is an yeah. adaptation of read coding. Yeah, I'm familiar. You have the same sort of thing. So all our patients are coded up and they have type 2 diabetes and the various categories of this. There are two categories, but the, the one which we are using is, is already there, which is called diabetes in remission. Um, so that code is, already exists, and if you code up a patient as diabetes in remission, then they're still recalled for annual eye checks and still recalled for an annual hemoglobin A1c, yep. even if they don't have active diabetes. Sure. So that code is, is perfectly safe from that point. I've had to point this out because I, ha I have, as you run into trouble, GPs saying you're going to cause ghastly problems because these people won't be monitored. No, mm. if you recode them as diabetes in remission, then they mm. are recalled and they're on the, on the system. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second is, of course, the, the STUSHI, which developed between Diabetes UK and the American Diabetes Association. And this STUSHI was slightly below visibility. Diabetes UK is a patient organization. It was set up by H.G. Wells, the writer, right. who, teamed, who had type 2 diabetes, who teamed up with um, R.D. Lawrence, the doctor, who was one of the very first people to have type 1 who got insulin. This is, I'm going back to the 1920s, 30s. Yeah. Um, and they organized this to be a patient professional collaboration. So it's an, an organization which speaks for and advocates for patients, but with support from the medical profession. Mm. And it's always kept industry at a bit of an arm's length. Um, and there's a sort of puzzle as to how much influence you allow. Mm. The American Diabetes Association, I'm going to be critical here, would appear to many people to be heavily dominated by drug industry. Mm. And you know, of course, insulin first created by Eli Lilly, and they quite rightly feel they have a big part to play and, and other industry. So there was this stushi, which Diabetes UK said, are people with type 2 diabetes in Britain, and they had a survey, said the top priority for us is we'd like to get rid of this disease, just as you might say with a lymphoma. Yes. I quite like to get shot of this thing. I'd yeah. like to be clear of it. Whereas the alternative is, well, we'll keep pouring in the drugs and keep your hemoglobin A1c to 7% if you possibly can with more and more and more drugs. It'd be fair to say that Diabetes UK as an organization stepped out of line with the rest of the world by saying, we believe it is possible. And this is mm. me, me putting pressure on them, I suppose, to say remission is a real entity. 
We've seen it happen in isolated cases. We've seen it after bariatric surgery. Um, it is something which should be achievable because we now understand what's, what, how the disease operates, its fat accumulation, and we get rid of that excess fat. It mm. should give us a remission. The American Diabetes Association for a very long time said there is no such thing as remission. You must keep taking the medication all the rest of your life. Mm. And that has now, uh, as of last year, the end of uh, 2018, has been more or less resolved by a joint statement between those two organs, the EASD and the American Diabetes Association, have now both said that remission of diabetes is a valid target for management. Mm. And the patients can now breathe a sigh of relief and say, great, where can I get this treatment? How do I do it? And then, then the hard work begins. <laughs> it would have made a fine novel. The warring two parties could have called it War of the Worlds. H.G. Yeah, Wells yeah. would have been proud. The medication we have for diabetes has clearly improved the outlook over a number of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, it had to because diabetes is, type 2 is now developing younger and younger and younger in more and more overweight people. So the, the drug industry has managed to keep the, the loss of life down to about seven years. I mean, just as an aside, when I last looked at this, there were 488 different drugs all approved and licensed to treat type 2 diabetes worldwide, 70 generic compounds and combinations of things taking it up to 488. They've all been researched. They've all got their license. Um, but none of them take the disease away. Mm. Um, and the fact that so many means this is a very profitable disease for the drug industry, but it also means we haven't actually got a single one that does the job, mm. to my mind. Yeah, which is unlike the nutritional approach, I guess. Let's move on to perhaps another conspiracy theory, looking at the food industry and perhaps the soft drink industry. You and I have had a, a few chats about various cola manufacturers i believe a piece of trivia is that is is it true you've never drunk a drop of coke in your life mike uh, that's absolutely true and, and indeed not any other kind of cola of any description and that and this is not this is not some out of uh, this wasn't unintentional it's simply my upbringing i never met it i never never came across it never came into the house i was away to boarding school and i never saw the stuff and it was only years later i discovered that everybody seems to be drinking this stuff i would have previously <laughs> thought you need to be living on a himalayan mountain to be well, a, a coke yeah, virgin yeah. well whether well, out of devilment we set up a little facebook group and with I, I bumped into another person in new zealand actually no i beg your pardon a new zealand in Sydney, mm. uh, Kira Sim, who, who's... There are many of those. Well, yeah. So, who, and we set up this group. For, so if anybody else out there it falls into this weird category, we'd be very happy to hear your story because they're all a bit different. No, the, uh, the, the story of the soft drink industry, um, you're quite right, has come in for a big kicking over the years. And it is an example, it's only one example, of how modern food marketing and its social, its social marketing mm. have normalised behaviours which previous generations would have been considered completely abnormal. My upbringing, perhaps I was a lost generation in, in Scotland. I was out in the hills and never saw this stuff. But go back a couple of generations, pre-war if you like, people didn't drink fizzy drinks. They, they simply didn't have them. They, they, they didn't exist. Um, people drank water, and if they graduated onto tea, well, that was some people did, many people did, or infusions of different kinds, which were largely unsweetened. And we have now normalised the consumption of very, very sweet drinks, um, and in, in many sectors of our communities, people are drinking that from the moment they rise in the morning until bedtime. So everything that passes their lips is very, very, very sweet, sometimes fizzy. And that is clever social marketing because what it has done is not only lead you, your palate, to uh, not to adapt into preferring tea and coffee and slightly bitter things that most previously most adults would have then 
moved on to. So children always like sweet things. They have a sweet palate, milk yeah. is sweet. Um, but as you grow up, I've seen it with my own children, they start to develop a taste for the bitter things, uh, the black tea. I mean, goodness, an 11-year-old suddenly says, do you know I like black tea? Goodness, I want it. Mm. Um, and that's natural, normal development. Your palate is expected to change away from the sweet things as you become adult. However, industry has seen to it that you can overcome that by putting sweetened drinks, sodas, call it what you like, Coca-Cola drinks and that sort of thing, into people's mouths all day long. So they sell lots of it. They've also put caffeine in. And you know the, why they put the caffeine in? They put the caffeine in as in under international law as a flavouring. But we've mm. done the experiment, as has Boyd Swinburne did a similar experiment in Melbourne, I think it was in Melbourne, where you, if you test the amount of caffeine in a sugary drink or sweetened drink, it doesn't have any flavour at all. It's in there because it's addictive. Mm. And Boyd's work showed that it increases the sales and consumption of your fizzy drink just by putting a, that tiny bit of caffeine in. Mm. So jolly good for the industry. They sell more by putting caffeine in. And, and that means that this sweet stuff is going into your mouth the whole time. And that means that when you're then confronted with food choice or food selection, you would tend to go to the sweet things, and people do. Mm. And that's exactly what they do. And because the sweet snacks, which are now marketed, are, are more attractive if you're accustomed to having very sweet things in your mouth the whole time. So the, the sweetened drink industry has caused this huge increase in the consumption of sweetened drinks. The amount of sugar that you actually get from the sugary drinks is not enough to cause the weight gain we see. And that is the result of a shift in entire eating habits. So the consumers of very, very sweet drinks are going to consume more calories from the snacks and things, particularly between meals. And that's, that's what we're seeing even in children. The evidence says, yes, sweetened drinks, fizzy drinks are associated with weight gain, not with diabetes, but with weight gain. And that association is not explained by the sugary drinks. It's explained by the other things they're then encouraged to eat. And that's the social marketing of snacks between meals. I mean, go back the two or three generations, perhaps even one generation in my case, I would have been punished mm. if I had been seen eating in school uniform between meals. You didn't do it. It wasn't done. Now every kid is sent to school with snacks to eat between meals. Mm. And they come in silver paper or wrapping paper and they've got cartoon figures on. And Basically, everything that you see with colourful paper, silver paper, cartoon figures is food with added value. And the added value is for the people who sell it and their shareholders who are wealthy Americans by and large, mm. um, not for the consumers. Yeah. I was a bit concerned then when you started getting onto caffeine, given that's my particularly pleasant addiction, and I was hoping you wouldn't say anything nasty about it. But let's move back to the sugary drinks. So it's interesting on the island where I live, um, there's a phenomenal amount of Coke or at least soft drinks sold per capita. And um, I showed you a picture on my phone yesterday of the sugar aisle in my local store, which um, unfortunately has not enough aisles, but one of them is pretty much dedicated to packets of sugar. One of the things I've been trying to do on the island, and I've, I've done this really for my career in terms of a relatively simple lifestyle change, is try to get people to substitute the nine teaspoons of sugar in a can of soft drink for a artificially sweetened soft drink, believing until very recently, perhaps this week, um, that that was doing them a favour, even though I was aware of studies that showed that people who drank artificially sweetened drinks don't tend to, in fact, lose weight. Mm -hmm. 
But after talking to you over the last couple of days, I'm now worried that I may have been giving the wrong advice, or at least um, not that it's harmful advice. But really, if, you, if you're not going to shift towards water or non-sweetened things, it, it's barely worth the uh, intervention. I mean, you're, you're right and you're wrong. The evidence says, as you, as you say, that switching from a sugary to a sort of low-calorie version has a very, very small effect. I mean, it's a, is it trivial? Uh, if it's cumulative over a long period of time, you could argue that, it, well, it might add up something over a long period of time, but we're not totally convinced that's happening. I think there's sort of another way of looking at this, and, and that is that, of course, the, the artificially sweetened alternatives are much cheaper to produce. So the industry is dead keen for you to do this. You know, mm. well done. You are now encouraging people to switch on to the commodity, I've which become a pawn. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, and and our poor old consumers out there are being you know, tricked many ways here. There is a parallel here with with our efforts to combat smoking, particularly in young people, where giving them an understanding of how they are being used, manipulated by big industry, has actually shifted thinking amongst a sector, at least, of young people. And I think we're going to start saying the same sort of thing about some of the, the, the sugary drinks, the sweetened drinks, the snacks, the things which we're, we have been socially marketed to accept as normal, and we need to question that. So the switch from a, a high-sugar cola to a, an artificially sweetened one will improve teeth, so you've done a good job for the dentist Thank a little you. bit anyway. And that, that is important because people are drinking really quite large amounts of this all day long. And that is, is certainly wrecking teeth. And if you, if you cut out the sugar, then that won't happen, although it's still pretty acid. It'll dissolve your teeth. Mm. Um, in terms of the risks of weight gain and secondarily of, of diabetes, you know, they're pretty minimal. And of course, nobody's done the long-term study, which, which would be needed to see whether a lifetime exposure to one or the other is going to, to make a difference. The studies which have looked, um, they're only observational studies over, over reasonably long periods of time haven't found really very significant differences here. If there are differences, they're largely down to an inclination for the, the, the high sugar consumers to gain more weight. But of course, that's kind of slightly social as well, because the, the earlier adopters of, of low sugar ones tend to be slightly better educated. People mm. who, who you know, keep on with the high sugar ones tend to be doing other things which are not conducive to control of body weight. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult one to unravel. You can adjust for some social factors in your analysis and you still see an effect. And then, of course, people adjust for body mass index and say, well, we've eliminated obesity. It has no effect. Ah, body mass index is not a measure of obesity. It's a very, very crude estimate of body fat. And, and it also, in young people, of course, measures your muscle. Mm. So in, in groups of young people, your body mass index in many ways reflects those who are more, you know, the heavier ones, higher ones would be more muscular ones. So it goes in the opposite direction. And you, you'd be better measuring body fat. Well, that's a bit more complicated, although we have got nice prediction equations now that can be used. So um, it is a bit of a minefield. The effect sizes we're looking at are pretty small. Yeah. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't knock your advice to get shot of the high sugar one, but I think that's not the whole job. That's a start. And in the same way, um, the, the tax on sugary drinks, which we now have in, in the UK, we predicted and correctly that the, even before the book was closed, the industry would have said, yippee, we'll switch over to the, um, the low sugar artificially sweetened ones because they're making more money out of you. Mm. And secondly, we predicted that the, there would not be a measurable or detectable change in obesity weight gain from that that tax and so far nobody's produced any evidence on that so I'm, I'm, i wouldn't won't say it must and it can't but it, we don't think it'll be a very significant one i think we have to use that as a, a sort of a bit of a landmark to say government is now prepared to do something 
something quite positive towards improving health. They've picked an easy target because the industry was very keen to do it anyway to make more money. Um, but I think we should now uh, encourage them to build on that and say, right, we now need to look at other ways of restricting the, the sweetness. And if we could do that and, and take down the sweetness, your, your conventional Coca-Cola and lemonades and all these things are a 10% sugar solution, mm. uh, a little bit higher in some countries, but mostly it's 10%. Evidence, again, very, very consistent evidence says if you cut that down from 10% to 9%, nobody notices. If you cut it down to 8%, nobody notices. Mm, like so, boiling a frog. So, so, uh, so, yeah, thank you. So why don't we, why don't we do that? Um, and everybody's terribly resistant because it's a sort of thin end of the wedge. Um, I, I can see no reason not to do it. Mm. Similarly, of course, your portion sizes, the bottles got bigger and bigger and bigger. People are consuming some vast numbers which are clogging up everything. Cattle eat them. I don't know, fish eat them. Whales are killed by them. Everybody, albatrosses. Um, so there's everything is stacked against this and, and I think the idea of encouraging people to to um, celebrate the water that we have and, and to enjoy it because I, mean, I think water is a lovely drink but then that's because I'm used to it and I've grown accustomed to it and, and behind that there's, there's another little issue which, which is worth experimenting when you go back to your island and that is if you can get people to say right we're going to have to drink we'll have only water for the next 10 days and support that by saying, well, well, for those 10 days, we're going, to have, we're going to just cut out the sweet things, just see what happens, and drink only water. And you will probably find that within 10 days, people can adapt to drinking water and actually start to fl- taste the flavor of the water. Because the f- day one and day two, you'll simply say, oh, this is you know, not sweet, mm. don't like it. But it doesn't take very long. Kids even quicker. Kids will adapt to non-sweetened drink very, very quickly, mm. especially if it has in other interesting flavours. But, I mean, water is fine. We, we have interesting uh, boar flavours on the island, a fair, a fair few minerals. I guess mm. you'd get a bit of the highland melting ice flavours in uh, Scotland, I would imagine. Uh, the, the, our ice melted a long time ago. In fact, with global warming, do you know, the, the last year was, was another year when we had no snow, the high mountains, no snow left. In, in the summer, it all melted. Right. That's, that is, that's very unusual, but it's happening. Mm, you were telling me that on a good winter, you can step outside your door and uh, pop your skis on and get going on your nature walk from there. Is that right? Yeah, I, I've actually put my skis on inside and <laughs> stamped, stamped out over the, and, and into the snow. When, when we have a decent fall of snow, but the last couple of years, there hasn't been any. And I, I'm very lucky because I live I, out, in the, out in the hills and I can, as you say, simply put my skis on and with skins and I can climb up a mountain and then ski down it. And it's, yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. So, Mike, we've been talking about losing 15 kilograms, which is a big ask for a lot of people. And... A couple of things. One is how effective actually is that? And secondly, how do we go about encouraging someone to actually achieve it? Okay, well, if, if the aim is to get shot of the diabetes, to be no longer diabetic, to have a, a remission, then five kilograms doesn't really do it. Ten kilograms weight loss, if it's maintained, you know, lose it and keep it off, will get you know a, a, more than half people into a remission. So that's more than 10 kilograms. If you can go the whole hog, lose over 15 kilograms, then we're talking nine out of 10 people will no longer be diabetic. It's extraordinary. And and after two years, it's it's still seven out of 10. So you, the majority of people with type 2 diabetes, if you get it early enough, and this is within six years of diagnosis, can get shot of it. The question then is, you know, can we actually do that? And the answer is, well, yes, in a variety of ways. And the way we have used it is with a program we spent a number of years, uh, in fact, 15 years developing. 
And it uses a formula diet for the weight loss phase. And the formula diet is 820 calories, plus or minus. So it's, it's quite a restrictive diet, but not a very low-calorie diet. Yeah. And it means that it's slightly more palatable and people can actually do it. And they have to understand that this is a serious treatment for a serious disease. It's equivalent to the type of treatment which you might take for a cancer to get the same sort of benefit from to get rid of your diabetes. So it's a, a, a very limited diet. Um, a formula diet doesn't taste great. You don't get back for second helpings. Yeah. Um, and you have to do that for about 12 weeks. And we're calling this total diet replacement. And that means you're not going to eat normal foods with your family. You're not going to go down the road to a restaurant. You're not going to have a flat white and a croissant. You're not going to have a glass of wine. For those 12 weeks, you're going to be treating this in the same, with the same seriousness as you might treat a cancer. Yep. And it, in that time, if you do that with 820 calories, you will definitely lose 15, possibly 20 kilograms. Then there's a transition onto weight loss maintenance. And the biggest need here is for support during that transition back onto eating foods which you might buy from, you will buy from an ordinary shop. Yes. And this is what people find more threatening because going into the shop or going to a restaurant or you know, sitting down with the family, that was what generated the weight gain and the diabetes in the first place. And this is what people had regarded as normal. So nobody sits at home and eats an abnormal diet. We all think we're eating quite normally. But we're having to move people towards a different normality. And establishing a new normality requires support and education, so both together. And it requires backing from other family members and such like. So this is quite this is the, the more tricky part. And the the reality is that not everybody can do it 100%, and there is a risk of regain. So one of the other things we've learned is from day one, we tell people, you're going to stop your medication because we're going to get you out of this diabetes if we possibly can, and 9 out of 10 can do it. We'll stop your drugs on day one. Um, and that's also a safety thing. So stopping the antihypertensive drugs is very important. Otherwise, yeah. they'll have postural hypotension. Um, and we recognize that once you've got the weight down, that isn't the whole job. We'll have in place relapse management. We call them rescue plans, such that if your weight tends to go up, something bad happens, something you've lost, taking your eye off the ball, then we will support you with a shorter period on total diet replacement to get you back in train. That was... Uh, very motivating because people, most people know they can lose weight. They've done it before, but they put it back on and they haven't seen how to do that. So giving support and also the confidence that that support will be there. So the, the role of our, our medical service, and of course, it's not doctors. It's, uh, this program was delivered entirely by practice nurses or dietitians, if there was one. It doesn't even have to be uh, a health professional. Yes. So we've got a similar program which we're developing now in Nepal, uh, where we simply don't have those people and we don't have money to pay for fancy formula diets. And it's using a food-based approach, but with exactly the same principles um, being delivered by voluntary um, community workers. And it's a totally community-owned project, uh, which is hopefully going to produce the same sort of results. Mm -hmm. So it can be done in other ways. And of course, there are plenty of people who are able to say, okay, I'll follow, you know, I'll do the discipline, tell me what to do, or where can I find out what to do, and I'll do it under my own steam. And that information uh, we have put up on our, our website. It's, it's called directclinicaltrial.org.uk. Yeah. And the .org is important. That means it's a charity, not a commercial thing. So it's directclinicaltrial.org.uk. Um, or you can just Google up um, our, our tongue-in-cheek Scottish dietary approach, which is called the No Doubts Diet. 
We actually called it the knee doots diet, but you wouldn't understand that. So it's called the no doubts diet. And, and for translation, for Australian <laughs> listeners, the word is doubts, D-O-U-B-T-S. <laughs> there you go. That was Dr. Justin Coleman and Professor Mike Lean discussing management of diabetes in primary care. Justin has recently developed a webinar series at Medcast on diabetes in general practice. In this series, Dr. Justin Coleman, Dr. Simon Morgan and Dr. Anita Sharma discuss the recent significant changes in approach to management of diabetes in primary care. To find out more about this new series and to register, please visit our website, medcast.com.au. Thank you for listening.